Louise was 24, which means you are 25. Ooh. Lucky 25. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah, this is episode 25 of Pals with Bill Wadman and Andrea Bartz is here. Author extraordinaire. Her book came out two days ago. Two days ago. The Lost Night. Yes. 26th of February. You can Crown. go buy it anywhere. Where, wherever books are sold. <laughs> I wonder how many bookstores there actually are in America versus 20 years ago. It's got to be a lot less, right? Well, I think it's I mean, a everyone's lot less, just but buying they're... off of online and stuff. No, it's true. Um, and so if you are buying this and you can get it from somewhere other than Amazon, support your local indies. Yeah. But there has been a boom, they say, in the last like two years of indie bookstores and they're doing better than they have before. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and or do you, how, how do you feel about ebooks? Do you like ebooks? You like Kindles? I'm torn because I read them because mm-hmm. I travel a lot, and so They're to be able convenient. to like load up, yeah, to be able to load up a bunch of books on my Kindle is very convenient, um, and I like that I can read at night with the backlight, and I don't have to use a hardcover. But you know, indie bookstores are like one of the happiest places on earth, and I love supporting them, and you can't. You can only get really hardcovers. Although there's a new thing. I think it's called mm, Libro.fm. Is that right? We okay. should check this and you should edit it in. Um, because there's a new way that um, to get audiobooks, not ebooks, but audiobooks uh, that supports indie bookstores instead of supporting Amazon. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because really they cool. bought Audible a million years ago. Exactly. <clears throat> it, it, you know, on Tuesday, I went uh, to go vote and my voting place is the library three blocks away. And I said while I was there, I thought, you know what? I don't have a library card. I should get a library card. You should have a library card. It's very easy and free. So I signed up for a library card and then I went on. It's crazy how the ebook system works with the Kindle with a library card. You can get all kinds of books. You could never buy a book again. Yeah. If you're (laughs) like a real rabid reader, which I'm generally not. Right. I mean, you could spend a lot of money on books every year. If you're tearing through a book every two, three days mm-hmm. and you're spending $15, $20 a book, you know, do you make more money on hard, hard, actual physical books versus eBooks? How does that work? I make more. Yeah. I get a higher cut of hardcovers. So people should go actually buy the so, book. So, I mean, when, when, when friends of mine very kindly say like, what's the way to benefit you most? I say hardcover also because like on bestseller lists and stuff, um, hardcover is its own category. Right. But people should buy it in whatever form they want. If they aren't in a position to buy it, they should request it from the library and that might make their library buy a copy, which right. is cool. Which is still good. Uh, I mean, reading, yeah. Reading should be accessible to everyone. Reading but is if you can buy it, that'd be great. <laughs> All right. So you, where'd you grow up? I grew up outside of Milwaukee. Right. Outside of Milwaukee. Now you said that the, the bookstores are sort of like one of your safe places. Yeah. I mean, was it always that way? Were you always like a rabid reader growing up and stuff? I was I was really resistant to reading and I hated it until like second grade when like something clicked and I started loving my little picture books and chapter books and my mom would take my sister and myself to the to the library every weekend and we would each have a tote bag and we would just like stuff it full with exciting things. So it kind of instilled in us this love of a fiction from a young age. Yeah. We would just chain read them throughout the week. And my parents also, my parents are, my mom especially is a big reader. So she just appreciated that. But my parents had a policy that like, even through high school, anytime like toys we wanted, no, we wanted to go to like KFC, no, but books at any point they would always like yeah. get for you us. Want that so book? read the yeah, book. Yeah. 
get the book. I would even, I think even in high school, I would come home and I'd be like, oh, I stopped at the used bookstore and bought some books and I'm going to leave the receipt. And they were like, great, we'll repay you. Like, wow. They totally funded my reading, something I hope to do for my eventual children. Like, yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating because uh, my wife reads voraciously as mm-hmm. you do, you know, it's like Kindle is in her hand. If I wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I come back, she's awoke in the middle of the night with her Kindle, you know, Kindle just, just appeared in her hands. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she gets up, she wakes up, she picks up her Kindle and she reads. Right. Like, and as I told you a couple of weeks ago, it's like, I don't read that much. I definitely don't read fiction almost at all. Yeah. You said this was your first fiction novel book in at least 10 or 15 years, which that's, I, I'm honored that this is the first. I feel like now you're sort of not allowed to have that much of an opinion on it because, like, you have no basis I have no for point comparison. of reference. I feel yeah. like I should be interviewing you. Like, what's it like to read a novel? What's it like to read a book after not reading a novel for well, ten I read books years? And I read, I read a lot, and right. I and I absorb. But I'm more of a history kind of guy. Okay, right? Like I, uh, I, I tend towards. Uh, there are enough true stories that, that the fiction stories, like it's like, it's, that's great. But like, there are so many true stories that I'm interested in more. That's fair. They yeah. both have merits and they have slightly different merits. I'm also a journalist. So I see the, I see right. the appeal of exactly. truth. Well, see, that's the thing. So you started in Milwaukee. Did you go to school for journalism? I went to school for journalism. Yeah. At okay. Northwestern in Illinois. Um, and I studied magazine journalism there. That was like a track. And, and what year was this? So I graduated in 2008. Which is a really fun time to graduate, <laughs> let me tell you. Especially in the journalism industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was, yeah, while I was interning, while I was in school, it was like, magazines are glamorous and amazing. And someday, yeah. like, I'll have a huge office and an assistant to bring me coffee and yeah, a town yeah. it's car. 13 going on 30. It was, yeah, it still seemed that way. And yeah. then I graduated and I got one of the last jobs at Condé Nast before they had a hiring freeze as an assistant. And then like... It was sort of like, first they came for our free lunches. We used to be able to expense our lunches. First they came for that. Then they came for all of the perks one by one. And of course, I kind of hunkered down and just wrote it out. But yeah, yeah, I ended up, I was in the industry as a full-time employee for, at different magazines um, for the next eight years, six, six, seven years, something like that. And you did a lot of like health magazines, a pregnancy Mm -hmm. magazine, like these kinds of that kind of world. Is that the, is that the magazine world you wanted to be in? Or is that just the magazine world you fell into? Like what kind of journalism did you want to do? Were you, I want to be a hard nosed reporter. Did you want to write lifestyle stuff? Like what, what what did you want to do when you were younger? I was always interested in women's magazines. I had read a ton growing up. I read all the teen Back when there were like 500 teen magazines. Yeah. Now Are there there's, none now? now I don't there's even none, know. really. There's online, but there's really no print magazine. 17 so was the weird, last. Right? It's very weird. But when I was growing up, there was YM and 17 and Girls Life and, you know, so many teen, teen magazine. Um, and so I was interested in women's lifestyle. Um, and I also really liked science and studies and stuff like that. I yeah. was a psychology minor in, in college and that kind of thing. Um, and so my first job at Self Magazine, I was in the happiness department, which was what okay. they called. I was the happiness assistant, um, which it's hard to believe now, but that was what they called the section that was like your, you know, career, personal finance, mental health, relationships, sex, like all your sort of non-physical well-being. Right. Um, and then I went to psychology today after that. So I was like deep into psychology. Right. But yeah, I bounced around within health, lifestyle, but generally always with a women's magazine focus. It's, it's, I mean, you really kind of followed the 
strange decline of editorial like editorial magazines oh in America, right? I mean, you <laughs> must you had like a first hand that right there, just a just a, 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 a autobiography of of living through magazines. I mean, I used to shoot for Business Week and Time and mm-hmm. these kinds of things back in the day, doing portraits for them. Back when these people had circulation of eight, ten million, yeah, you know, like yeah. these big magazines. And it's just like, and then time gets sold off for, you know, peanuts. Right, a couple right. Years Pennies ago. on the just, dollar. Yeah. You're like, that's crazy. Time Magazine, this thing that when you were a kid in the 90s was like the biggest thing that could happen if you were on the cover of Time Magazine or whatever yeah. it is. Now yeah. it's gone. I worked at Glamour at one point and that was one seeing that fold Yeah. Um, at the, the end of last year it was really like the end of an era. Yeah, yeah. It's been around so long. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, my last full-time job, I was at Fit Pregnancy and Natural Health. We had one team doing both magazines and it was ironic because they brought in this new team to sort of revitalize the magazines. And we did, you know, from new, a creative visual a, point yeah, of view, yeah, from a creative and editorial point let's of give view. Give it a splash. Let's, yeah, let's, let's give it a makeover. And we knocked it out of the park. Readership was up. Ad dollars were up. Like people were loving it. We were really connecting with our reader and because, uh, we were doing well, we were sort of sold off as, as a way to sweeten the deal when the company sold um, shape to to Meredith, and it's a lot of a lot of shop talk. But basically, because we were doing well, even that didn't protect us. And that's right. when I was like, I that think, made you more valuable to sell. Yeah, it made us more. Yeah, just made us a liability, and we were all laid off for doing our jobs well. And that's kind of when I was like, I think I need to be freelance yeah. and be my own boss because yeah. I will not lay myself off. Yeah. There's something really interesting about the magazine industry that people who on the outside don't understand is that the, the readers are, 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 they're not, it's not for the readers. The readers are the, are the, are the product. Yes. Right. It's, it's all for the, the advertiser. Yes. You're writing stuff in a certain way so that advertisers want to put stuff in the magazine because that's what readers want to read the articles. Therefore, they'll see the magazine. So it's the readers are the product, not the advertising is the you're product. Making it, yeah. You're making it sound maybe a little more nefarious than it is because our goal really was to serve the reader. But like that, the, re, the, the way that you could get an entire year's worth of a magazine for like seven or eight bucks, that's because your subscription dollars are not what kept it afloat. Your eyeballs right. are what kept it yeah, afloat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's why when you stop subscribing to something, you still get it for like five months yeah, because they yeah. really don't want to take you off the list. They're like, come eyeballs on, you, you're going to say you want to keep this. Come on, you have one more chance. Yeah. We'll give it to you for 50% off. Yeah. 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 It's a fascinating world. So where, so where did writing fiction come in? Did you always want to write fiction or was that like a more recent, you know- uh, uh, observation. Did, did a bulb go off in your head and go, Oh, I know what I'm going to do now as a second thing. Like I'm going to write some fiction. It's a great question. I don't have a totally clear answer. So when I was little, I was always, you know, in addition to reading voraciously, I was always writing little short stories and books and I made pretty good headway on the little novel when I was like 12 and things like that. So as a kid, I always thought I was going to someday be an author, but then once I sort of got to college and learned what journalism was and loved it, um, I put that aside and I was really focused on being an editor and I wanted to be an editor in chief and wanted to have a whole career there. And so I haven't thought about, I hadn't put these, I hadn't sort of lined this up and put two, two and two together before, but when I was, um, laid off, I had started working a little bit on my novel, but not in a serious way. And when I was laid off the last time and it was like, the third layoff because anywhere I worked kept folding. Yeah. Um, 
I must have felt like Groundhog Day in some ways. It, it sort of did. It was like again, and then there yeah. were coworkers who, for them, it was the first time, and I was like coaching them through it. I was like, "You'll be fine. I've survived this many times." But I think that's when I was like, this is um, something I always wanted to do. And like the job that I always dreamed of for myself as like a glamorous editor in chief with a a town car and a driver doesn't really exist anymore. So let's focus on this other thing. Um, And I had never, you know, worked on a project for years like that before. Um, I had never, you know, I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing in terms of like plotting out a novel or trying to sell it or anything like that. So it was a slow and long process with a lot of learning as I went, but, um, it was so, so to answer your question, yes, it was something I always wanted to do, but I sort of moved away from it for a bit as a magazine editor. Right. So here we are in February of 2019. Mm -hmm. When did you start writing this book that got published in, in February of 2019? I started writing it in October, 2014. Okay. So four and a half years ago. Yeah. And I did, um, National Novel Writing Month in November, which I don't yep. know if you've heard of it, NaNoWriMo. I, I, I know people who, yeah. who do that. Yeah, It's this insane thing where tons of people commit to writing 50,000 words in a month. Did you get 50,000 words in that month? I And I, I won NaNoWriMo that, that year. I wrote 50,000 words, most of them terrible. Yeah. Um, but Wait, then- how, how many words in the final version? So the final version is 98,000, okay. something like okay. that. Yeah, I just but even then, it was about, yeah, it was about half half of my novel. Um. But very few of those words are in the, yeah. the eventual process. Oh, yeah, I want to talk about that process, but go ahead. Yeah, we'll get there. But um, there was a certain sort of mental switch and like the sunk cost fallacy of, well, now I've come this far. I couldn't possibly put it down. So after that, even though there was most of the work was yet to come, I still felt like invested enough that I had to keep going. Yeah. So it was good to make me work on it. Did, did, you know, did after November happens and you get 50,000, did you feel like I have, I have a, a thing that happens to me when I'm making creative stuff, especially larger sort of stuff where mm-hmm. I'm making a short film or I'm doing whatever, where it's daunting, it's daunting, it's daunting. And then there's a point at which you get to the precipice and you go, Oh I know I kind of, it's kind of there. Like it's, it's not done, but, but and it needs revision and it needs mm-hmm. whatever it is. But like, there's something on the page, like there's something concrete. There's a foundation to work from yeah. here. It's not like I'm still digging dirt to make the hole for the foundation. The foundation is there. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know that it was so much that it felt like, oh, I've, I've, I've got something there to work with. It was more like, I cannot look back and think that I've wasted all of this time <laughs> working on it and all of these hours. So like I damn well better. Turn this into eventually a book. I'm going to finish it, damn it. Exactly. It was just like this sheer, you know, teeth gritting, clawing determination. At the time though, was it a matter, was it the idea was, no, I'm going to turn this into a book and I'm going to find a publisher and I'm going to do all that. Or was that even, that wasn't even part of the thing at the time. It was, no, I'm just going to finish this book. And then what happens, I'll figure that out when I'm done. Or was it always the plan from the beginning? It was somewhere in between. I mean, I wasn't very focused on the publication part yet because you kind of can't be. And if I had, um, if I'd been too concerned about that, I probably wouldn't have written this book because uh, it it basically centers on, it doesn't use the word very often, but it basically centers on a bunch of hipsters, right? It's like the the mystery takes place in 2009. There's a mysterious death um, in a sort of warehouse loft building in Bushwick and Brooklyn and in 2014, everyone still hated hipsters. Remember that? Everyone like, like Gawker literally had a ban on using the word. And, 
And so when I started it, I was like, I like this idea and I think there's something there, but this, how could this possibly be sellable? Everyone like hates this concept, this group of people, et cetera. And so I kind of had to just put that aside and write it because it was an idea that I thought I could, I could run with. Right. And I ended up, luckily, now enough time has passed that 10 years later, we're sort of looking back nostalgically on 2009. Right. But um, I, I wasn't, so in that sense, I wasn't being strategic about like, ooh, I've done my research and I think this is what will sell. But that said, uh, I'm super goal-driven and I, it would not be enough for me to, I'm sort of achievement-driven. Like it wouldn't be enough for me to finish it and be like, great, now I can put that aside and never touch it again. I right. always wanted to sell it and have, have this happen, have it actually out in the world. Yeah. 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 And I mean, in like 20, let's say you finish a, a version of the book in 2015 somewhere. Like, let's say you, mm-hmm. okay, there's a book needs revisions and needs mm-hmm. editing, but like, here's a book that was really in the, in the heyday of people are self-publishing stuff all the time and you can make 70% instead of 7% or whatever the heck it works out to be. Was there ever thought of like, no, I'll just send this out there. Cause there's people who want to read books like this. People who are voracious readers who read tons of stuff. Yeah. This is exactly the kind of, you know, page turner mystery kind of thing that people like. Yeah. For me, I always wanted to go the traditional route, even though the self-published route is right for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I had had amazing mentors and editors and teachers in my magazine career. And I just felt like I didn't know enough about publishing and book publishing to try to go it alone. So for me, it was really important to find a good agent who would be like the right salesperson for it. And then the right editor who would actually help me, you know, tighten it and turn it into something good. Um, And then of course there's the benefits of like, you know, Penguin Random House has a marketing team and a publicity team and all that stuff. Um, So for me, I just wanted to go a traditional route where there'd be people I could, I could come to with questions and I could learn from. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know how, how was finding an agent and all that? Is that, is that, as difficult as it is in every other field? I think so. I just, I actually just wrote a piece about this. It's interesting because you're looking to hire someone and yet you feel like you're like auditioning for them. I'm yeah, sure you, it's a you weird relate. thing. Yep. It's this very strange sort of like hinge point. Like, well, you kind of work for me. Right. Yeah, I feel like I kind of work for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Who's yeah. in charge here? Exactly. Yeah. Who's yeah, driving yeah. this bus? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a really funny thing and, and people hadn't, people don't talk about it a lot. People talk about the writing process and then people talk about, you know, what to do when your book actually comes out, but it's sort of this interesting hinge point if you want to go the traditional route. Um, so to make a long story short, I, um, spent some time just familiarizing myself with the different agencies out there and, um, watched who was making what kind of deals, who represented authors that I like, stuff like that. And, um, worked really hard on a query letter and had anyone who would, anyone who would look at it, look at it. So we had it really tight. And, um, I queried, I think I was just looking at this. I queried 27 agents over the courses of a few days. Um, and one of those agents actually saw it and kind of thought, oh, this isn't right for me, but this might be right for someone else at the agency and forwarded it over. And that agent made my first offer of representation. Yeah. Uh, and that was really nice for me because that allowed me to go back to every other agent I'd queried whom I hadn't heard back from and say like, Hey, I have this offer, so I'm happy to give you a week if you want to consider it. And so it sort of moved me up in the slush pile for a lot of people. Um, and so I ended up having three offering agents from that. Um, and I did the homework of 
um, asking them a ton of questions about how they would position the book and what kind of changes they would want me to make. I talk do you to give them the whole clients. book or do you give them samples? How do you, how do you do that? So it's a little different for every agent. These people can't read 7,000 pages a week. They somehow, Bill, they somehow do. It's insane. They get dozens and dozens and dozens of That's queries insanity. a day. And they're, yeah, their assistants do a first pass. And so they'll specify what they want. But generally it's like the query letter and the first 10 pages or the first 20 pages or maybe the first chapter. Yeah, we'll give you a taste. Yeah, like, so you start with a little Is this interesting taste. or not? Okay, yeah, I want to read more. Yeah, do I want to read more? Because they probably know pretty quickly yeah. when it's a pass. Yeah. So then they'll request the full manuscript. Um, and so I got, I think, about a dozen requests for the full manuscript yeah. and then um, three made offers based on that. Um, and I selected from there. I work with the wonderful Alexander Machinist at ICM. Um, and so I worked with her on revisions and then she is the one who took it out and, and went on submission with a bunch of different publishers. Okay. Before we get to the mm-hmm. editing process, cause I find this interesting and, and trying to find a publisher and all that, there are, uh, there are a lot of, uh, facts in the book and I don't want to get into too much cause I don't want to give too much away to people. Yeah. But there are, there are, there are things in the book that could be autobiographical or, not necessarily based on people you know, but there's details. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a, a friend of yours who has a house in Saugerties or whatever, and I know you have a friend who has a house <laughs> in Saugerties, right? Like how much people in your life, not necessarily their character, yeah. But did you pull details from? Is that is that am I reading too much into that, or did that happen? That's or a does fair that question. I feel like for the sake of the of the listener, we should we should give a very quick summary of the book so sure. that they yeah, yeah. right they have some grounding. Yeah, yeah. So The Lost Night is a thriller about a woman sort of uncovering the dark truth surrounding her best friend's apparent suicide in a Brooklyn loft ten years earlier. And um to give a little more detail, way back in two thousand nine, there was a bunch of twenty three year olds partying and <laughs> kind of ruling ruling their little world, their little you know, square mile of North Brooklyn. Um, and the nerve center of their social life was this building called Calhoun Lofts, which was a very crummy warehouse turned artist lofts where you could walk in on any given weekend and find an EDM concert and a, you know, a dance party and a poetry reading and Did you go to these things have in all these adventures that does happen to be based <laughs> in reality, rooted in reality. It was not called Calhoun Lofts, but um, it was a super memorable thing that you could walk in without an agenda and you sort of get lost from your friends and have your own, choose your own adventures and then meet up late in the night or the next day and sort of compare notes and compare your nights. And the premise of the book is that, you know, one Friday night such as that, everyone is drinking and splits off. And at the end of the crazy night when the dust settles, there's a dead body. The the best friend of our narrator, uh, her body is found in her apartment. And... Uh, there's a suicide note nearby and it's horrible and they sort of scatter and move on. And then 10 years later, our narrator, who's now a fact checker at a magazine, yep. which I'll address how that may or may not be <laughs> somewhat rooted in reality, um, basically uncovers some evidence that suggests not only was it maybe not a suicide, but that she herself may have been involved and her right. memories from that night are pretty hazy. And so she begins investigating from there. Right. Um, and goes and meets up with all the people from the past, tracks down the people from back right. then and revisits her old memories and technology and her right. old emails and all that. So they have to have, so all these people have to be fleshed out with details. It is true. So no, there's no single people in there who are just absolutely, that's this one friend with a different name. I didn't do that, but you know, to make these people feel real, they need a whole range of characteristics yeah. and 
and flaws and secrets and quirks and all those things. Um, What's more real than real people's flaws, secrets and quirks? I mean, so yeah. So to make them feel realistic, I had to give them a lot of, of um, sketching out. I would say the characters are not so much real people, but uh, especially like little anecdotes and like little memories from sure. 2009 that, that Lindsay, the narrator is thinking back on and what happened this one night that they were playing karaoke roulette or that they were all playing Jenga at, you know, a bar or yep. whatever those things Stuff's are written on the Jenga pieces and that kind of stuff. A lot of yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a lot of that is, um, is, is based in reality. And I think it'd be really hard to accurately capture a scene if I didn't have firsthand experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it has this quasi autobiographical feel while also obviously being about fictitious character. So mm-hmm. it's like where that line is, is what interests me. You know what I mean? Like wh- where on that continuum is reality and you don't have to answer that. But, but I, I just, I, that's the thing that I think about while reading it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how I'd answer it. Like things are, some things are definitely entirely ripped from real life. And the meanwhile, the plot points are yeah. pretty much entirely fictitious. So okay, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> so the, the, the manuscript that you had when you found an agent mm-hmm. was, bigger book or a smaller book or a different book than what finished? It was a different book. Um, the premise was still there. My agent had relatively few edits for me to make, but then she went out on submission and a lot of no's came in because there was still, this was early 2017 now. Um, it felt a little familiar to people through the, the sort of psychological thriller, female driven, female narrator. That whole field is really crowded, understandably, and people were worried it wouldn't stand out enough in a crowded in a crowded market. Um, and so there were not one but two agents who liked, or excuse me, editors who liked it enough that they said, "I can't make an offer on this right now as it is, but if the author is willing to make some changes, I would look at it again." It's called a revise and resubmit request. Okay, so how how different were their notes? From each other. So yeah, funny story. My agents is, you know, recounting this to me and I'm like, but Alexandra, what do I do if their notes are different? And she goes, I don't know what to tell you because I've never had this happen before. Luckily, their notes were not that different. Okay. They were sort of overlapping, sort of complimentary. Um, and and I agreed with them, importantly. Okay. I was like, no, you're right. That would make it better. Can you give us details of those or are you giving too much away? Um... I'm just interested in the process. So yeah. I, like, I'm kind of like, wait, what changed? Do you know what I mean? It was, yeah. I mean, it was less notes in terms of here's how to fix it. And it was more problems. This is the these, thing that, they, yeah, I, this isn't I don't working. understand this or yeah, like exactly. this needs to be fleshed out or. Yeah. Things that weren't working because these people weren't my editors yet. They weren't, yeah, yeah. you know, so it wasn't really in their best interest to sure. sit and, and, and brainstorm solutions with me or anything. So it was just all of these this is, problems. This is like people, uh, uh, art buyers looking at my portfolio mm. and saying, oh, these are the six photo. These are my six favorites and will be the six that somebody else suggests get removed from my portfolio. And you go, well, this is telling me nothing. It's like, true. Yeah. It's really it's frustrating. True. It's really, really like, yeah. And that happened too with the, the rejections from other editors who flat out rejected it. It was like, Oh, the, the characterization fell, fell a little flat. And then the next person says, I adored the characterization, but Ugh, I wasn't sure yes. about the writing. And then yeah, the yeah, next, yeah. you know, by the way, the, somebody I interviewed recently, my friend Gigi, she said something really interesting to me on our, on our episode. She said, you know, I've gotten to the point now where when people say no and people reject me, I just see that as a nothing, not as a negative. Wow. 
So good for it's her. like, you don't like my thing. That's fine. That's a rel- That's like no new information right. for me, which I thought was like a really, cause it, getting a negative hit hurts me. Right. She's found a way to say, if you don't like it, then next. Like that's, that's amazing. Fi- right. And I, I don't know. I just like, I don't know if you have the same are I you would more love, like me? I would love to get there. I still, <laughs> still certainly have my negativity bias where it's like, yeah, like all of these amazing thriller writers loved it and wrote blurbs and it got starred reviews. And then one like random reviewer in, in, you know, Dallas, Texas is like, I found the main character unlikable. And then they tag me in that review for some reason yeah, and yeah, that yeah. ruins my day. And I'm like, yeah. you have 2000 followers. Why do I care? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But yeah, also people like, People I know in real life feel this strange compulsion to tell me like, oh, I enjoyed the book, but here's the thing. Like I have to say, and then they give me some sort of criticism of it. And I'm like, great, let me just hop in my time machine. I'll go back two years. Change it again. I'll change that so that you don't have this one issue with whatever. Yeah. yeah. But you know, at this point, criticism, I like this. I like this theory of your friend of yours. Like at this point, there's nothing I can do to change it. Just going to see that as a, okay, didn't connect with you. Going to move on. But at the time with my, with these editors giving me notes, it was like, okay, they might actually be onto something. All right. So what were their notes? What, (laughs) what, what, it was like a fundamental shift in the way the book, the, the viewpoint of the book, you know what I mean? Like a, oh yeah, I need to add this whole other level or I need to turn the prism 40 degrees. Like, was it that kind of change? It was, it was pretty fundamental because it's, it's, it's a little hard to remember now because I remember what I did as solutions, but it's hard for me to remember what the note was that inspired it. Yeah. Um, but for example, a really simple and straightforward one was that the fact that in, in an earlier draft that they had read, Lindsay and the narrator is still a pretty heavy drinker, even yeah. now as a 33 year old. Um, and there's something with like the unreliable narrator who's also a heavy drinker. So that's it's too unreliable. It's well, we have, it's just sort of familiar, right? We have the girl on the train. We sure. have the woman in the window. We have like, it's, it's becoming sort of a trope. And so they felt like that maybe would make it oh, harder so to inter- stand out. So it's interesting that, yeah, that, that it's not about your particular story, but how your story relates to other stories mm-hmm. that they want you to have her be sober. Or whatever. Right, right. They're really, yeah, they really don't want it to be. To be looked at as like derivative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Or a copycat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a good note. And actually it allowed me to play with things and raise the stakes. And um, it's sort of, you know, someone else I was, someone else interviewing me about the book pointed out that it, the, then alcohol sort of became like Nabokov's gun. Yeah, <laughs> because, sure. Because <laughs> uh, you learn that, yeah, now Although she doesn't drink. Although there's a gun. There's Nabokov's gun. Chekhov is already gun. in there. Sorry, Chekhov. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so... That was, yeah, that was a change that was throughout the book. But then it seems like, oh, that's just a simple, straightforward thing. You get rid of any references to alcohol. But like, no, it, it takes a lot more sort of messing with it to, to get sure. it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's one of many sort of throughout the book global notes. And, and when you were getting notes like that as, as a person who just spent years writing a book and kind of pouring your heart into it, did it feel like, oh, I forgot. No, it's, it's great the way it is. I mean, did you have, did you feel emotional pushback to making changes? For other people. I don't. And this is where I think being a journalist helps me. I don't have. Because you've written a lot of stuff and had people rip I've, it apart. People rip it, it to shreds. Like yeah. I have very little attachment to like. She's like red pen. I've, yeah. And if there was certain. I mean, yeah. If they were like, oh, I think Lindsay should like be in a relationship by the end to show growth. I would be like, screw you. But these were notes that I was like, you know, I didn't think they were bad notes. Yeah. I just. It was more just like the sort of existential despair I felt at like. 
this is going to be so hard and I'm yeah. so tired. And I think, you know, per your goal comment earlier, how you're goal driven, it's like, yeah, there is a goal. I want to get this published by a big publisher, but the steps between here and there mm-hmm. is completely unknown. Mm-hmm. This could be a one year process. There could be a seven year process. Mm-hmm. This might never happen. It's not like there was a guaranteed thing. Right. Who knows how many of these revisions you would have to do right. and what would it be at the end of it versus what was it at the beginning and you yeah. know, all those kinds of things. And in a very literal sense, it's quite common for someone, for an editor to make a revise and resubmit request for the author to do all this work, revising it yeah, and for them like to it. look at it and no, still not a fit for me. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, that especially put sort of a pall of, yeah. you know, anxiety. But, over that that could, but that could also, I mean, it could still have made the book better. Yeah. Potentially. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. And like I said, I agreed with the note, so it wasn't that, but it was just, you know, my attitude is very much like I haven't published a book before. So if somebody who has done this before thinks that X should happen, like I'm pretty inclined to agree. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of a scary, lonely period. And it's funny cause it's actually where I'm at right now with my second book of knowing all these problems and feeling sort of alone and trying to figure out how to fix them and staring yeah. at the ceiling at night with, with how on earth am I going to make this work? Um, it's just, it's a really tough part of the process. And this time I know it's going to get published. The publisher already bought it. And it's, yeah. it's just, I, I think I'm learning from my sample of two books. This is only my second book. Um, that this is just a really hard part of the process between yeah. banging out that first draft and then actually having something that everyone's kind of happy with that you're working with in in more granular detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so of those two that you resubmitted to, one of them bought it? One, yep, one okay. one bought it. And that the other is one wanted to or just the one? You know, the, the one stepped in, I never really heard a final what she thought, but one yeah. very quickly rang it up the flagpole at her publisher at Crown and, and made the offer. And so I, I'm actually not quite sure if they reached pulled it back from the other or what happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And you were happy about all that process? Yeah. I mean, from, from where I sat, it was, um, Wait, is uh, that, is that common just to make a single revise and resubmit thing or can that happen iteratively where it's like, yeah, that was good, but like change it even more before we, I mean, can that happen? Do they go rounds or I don't think they do without, like if there okay. was, if there was still a need, if they still couldn't make an offer on it at that point, I don't think they'd have a ton of faith that maybe you're able to do it. So sure. I think at that point it would be a, okay. a no. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was a lot riding on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So once they buy it, you sign the stuff. Mm-hmm. Now it's Okay. What When was this, by the way? What, what date are we talking? This was July 20... 16. Okay. Is that so, right? 20, no, 2017. July 2017. Yes. Okay. So like 20 months or something. 2017. 20, oh, so like 16 months or something like that. It was like, yeah, it was, it was under a year and a half from, from then to publication. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there was a long time in there that you wrote the book that you were, where the book was, you were either revising it or agents or sending it to people there was years in there of doing all of that process. Yeah. It's yeah. a very, it's a very it long, a long time. Yeah. I've never figured out my, you know, per hour, per hour rate on any of this, but I'm sure it'd be very upsetting. Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the larger discussion of a lot of writing, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you're, most people are not going to get fabulously rich being a writer. It's true. Yeah. Right. You know, that's especially because the amount of time it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so at what, where was the book compared to where it ended by the time it got to when, when the editing process started, 
Was it like, no, this is pretty good. This is, did they want you to cut it down? Did they want you to bulk it up? Did they want you to make minor changes? Like where was it at that point in the process? So the, the version of the manuscript that like my editor made an offer on is pretty close for all intents and purposes, pretty close to what's actually out there. Okay. Um, so the next level of revisions was not really global notes anymore, not really entire manuscript notes. Right. It was more like chapter level and even scene level. And then line line edits yeah. is sort of the most. Yeah, when she's sitting down get. with this guy at the thing, I don't like the way this happens or or yeah, this maybe feels, yeah, maybe this her scene response come is a little trite. That. Maybe you should try this, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And even a little bit of reshuffling of I think if we move this up to before this scene, it'll give more energy to this section, whatever. Yeah, but, it I mean, cause because she's piecing it together and she's getting information from different people, but there are some places where you could flip things around, change a few lines and, and move scenes around. Mm -hmm. Did those feel natural, those shifts or did that feel a little bit like, okay, we're moving chairs around, but this is not fundamentally changing the room. So why are we moving chairs? It felt, I mean, to me, Often I would, I would make the change and then I would be like, oh yeah, like that does work better. It, yeah. it does, you know, make sense for this to come before that and for things to be revealed in this order. But the thing was, I'd been working on it so long. I was so intimately familiar with every scene and like the exact order of things. Yeah. And if I needed to jump to something, you know, five chapters before I knew it well enough that I could control F for like some words in a sentence. I basically had it nearly memorized and I could jump to it. Um, and so it made it pretty easy for me to keep track of sort of mentally all of the like note cards of every scene yeah. and how to move them around. Um, whereas, for example, with my second book, which I'm working on now, I don't near I don't have my arms wrapped around it nearly as well because I haven't been working on it. For and, five and you're years. not a you're not a uh, flashcard on the wall person. I'm not. I did I did one step of that when I was finishing. Some drafting, people that's how they live, right? It's yeah. Some people that yeah they 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 have all of the note cards in the bulletin board the post-its on the yeah. wall and they're moving things around. Um, and yeah, that's a lot easier to do when you're super, super, I think you're either super intimately familiar with it yeah. or you're seeing it as an outsider, like an editor, like my editor. Right, right, right. And right, just right. sort of able to like zoom out yeah. and look at it holistically. I, you know, I, I, when I was in college, I kind of, well, I read almost all of the Tom Clancy novels. Mm -hmm. I just kind of got obsessed with them for a while. Yeah. And those are- a thriller fan? Yeah, but those are giant tomes. Yeah. And he's very much of the- uh, okay, I'm going to start a storyline way back here on page 50 that's going to end up having some weird thing where like something fell off a ship on page 50 <laughs> and then on page 780, that thing came ashore and caused an accident which led to, you know, this, the, the big thing happening. And I always imagine him almost writing backwards. Mm. Like, okay, I need mm -hmm. a thing to happen here so I got to plot it way back in the beginning, right? Like yeah. I got I to preset did you write linearly or did you, you know what I mean? Did you start out? Okay. Yeah. Here she is. It's friends dead. It's 30 years later. Now, where do I go? Or did you see it as, Oh, I know where it's going to end up and I'm going to like kind of find the places where I need to put the plot points in. So kind of neither. I didn't totally know how it was going to end. I had a premise okay. um, without an ending. She's like, it's a mystery to me it's too. It's a mystery. Well, that's the thing. When it cracks me up when reviewers are like, you know, like Goodreads reviewers and stuff are like, oh, I could tell from the second chapter, like I knew exactly who done it and it was so obvious. And I'm like, really? Wait, you didn't decide who I had didn't done know. it at that point? No. Really? That came later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what I would do is basically write with way too much detail and I would just drop Tana French. Tana French, who's also a great um, mystery writer, talked about 
I was happy to learn that her process is mine is like mine. You're just sort of walking along at the beginning, like dropping a million little things. You're you're opening mousetraps. You're just dropping details yeah. all over the place at the beginning, hoping that your subconscious is giving you something you can work with later. Yeah. Because then as the, you know, bombs need to start going off or the, the mousetraps need to start springing to mix all sorts of metaphors, you're hoping that there's something you've already dropped in that you can call back to to make it feel Okay, so those satisfying. callbacks are not necessarily intentional. Not necessarily. I mean, they become intentional, but yeah. but but also the Tom Clancy thing that does happen sometimes too. Of um, you know, oh, well, it would be perfect if if you know X was a reveal, but in order for it to feel satisfying, I need to I need to seed it much sooner, yeah, and then yeah. I'll go back and find places in earlier chapters to sort of hint at it for the careful reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah some yeah, of yeah. both. Okay, so you go through this process with the editors, which obviously was not that long because when did they lock the book? When did it, when did you finish last summer? So last uh, April is when it went to copy edits. So I probably got my revisions around my my notes around the holidays, and yeah, then uh, about this time last year, I was I was wrapping up revisions. Okay, are there any typos left? Because a lot of times, like you I find one or two so. things. Oh my god! I didn't and I'll notice be... anything in particular, but like usually, even with big books. It and you were like, reading a galley, so I know of at least four four errors that have been corrected in the one you read. Oh, really? Yeah, just clerical errors, like like uh, spelling stuff or flipped words or flipped. Yeah, there's flipped word. There's an extra two to thrown in there. Um, yeah, there's little little typos that a copy editor should have <laughs> caught. But I think we caught them for the. I don't know. Someone could still surprise yeah. me. See, that's kind of stuff fascinating to me too. Yeah. Just finding all those little things. So, how does that feel when they say, "All right." We're done. Andy, you're done. I mean, you're now not. Now it's just waiting, you know? Right. You're not totally done because you start getting, then after that, it goes to copy edits, and then the copy editor has a million questions. Right. So you have to fix things for them um, and argue with them. That's like when I did the most heel digging, digging in appeals. Wait, what kind of stuff would they, would, uh, the copy editing? So do? they're very, very picky, which is their job, right? So part of it is that they're catching inconsistencies and in things. Oh, you said it was a Tuesday, and now it's a Wednesday. And I'm, they're amazing at that. But then sometimes they'll just little language things. Like I write in a, I mean, you read it sort of a lyrical weird way that doesn't always necessarily conform to grammar rules. Sure. And they want things to conform to grammar rules. Fair enough. Um, as long as you're using serial commas, I'm all right. It's yeah. We use serial commas. <laughs> calm down. Um, I don't know how anybody could argue against it. I mean, I agree. It's, you open yourself up to so much confusion if you don't Ambiguity, do it. man. It's like lock it down. Yeah, lock it down. But that was their thing was they really wanted everything super locked down. And sometimes I wanted things to be a little weird. Like I would use a weird metaphor and they'd be like, I don't really understand. How can you like unscramble a whatever? And I'm like, just go with it. Yeah. Like, yeah. let me be. So yeah. I had a round with copy editors and then you start getting um, page proofs. So like the first pass is the first time that it's, um, actually like formatted on the page and um, looks like it will when it's in an eventual book form. And that's when you start noticing all sorts of little errors you never noticed before and arguing over things and this is breaking weirdly and we need to fix this formatting and things like that. Sure, so sure. I think I had, I think I read three passes in that form. Um, is Word still the standard document format for all this stuff? So Word, yeah, it's still Microsoft Word when we're going back and forth and then I get a physical printout of once sure, it's yeah, in the passes, it's, yep. it's printed out and I have a red pen. So I don't know what they're working in at that point, but yeah, it's a, uh, uh, so all along, did you like this whole thing? Cause I mean, finally it's out. 
but you know, you've and close people, people close to you have read it already, obviously. Yeah. And you know, I read it last week before right. other people read it. Right. So does it feel weird to have potentially thousands or tens of thousands of people now reading this book that you've spent six years on? It's like, this, it's out there. It's like, it's not yours anymore. It's the world's now. You know what I mean? That it, I still, sometimes I'm like, how do you know about Lindsay and her friend Damien and her <laughs> friend Tessa? Like there are these people I made up that live in my head yeah. and on a Google doc on my computer. Like it's very bizarre that now they are other people's. And what's really cool and a little frightening is that like people are noticing themes or making inferences that like never crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, like someone, um, someone at Penguin Random House uh, made a, from the marketing department, made like a reading, reading group guide that if a book club were to read this, which by the way, plug, if your book club reads it, contact me and send me questions and I'll make a video answering them that you can play at your book club meeting. Oh, I saw a post for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there was a reading group guide and one of her questions was, you know, all of Edie, Edie's the, the woman who died, all of Edie's friends were, you know, holding different secrets of hers. Um, do you think that that um, made them feel partially responsible for her uh, suicide? And I was like, never thought about that, but yeah. cool, like cool yeah, inference. Yeah. So just there's a million little examples like that of like, yeah. oh, you thought I was trying to do X. I, I, I was, was just trying to write a book. <laughs> I was listening to a 25th anniversary review, uh, sort of a. This rewatchables podcast. You ever listen to this? Right. Mm. You know, Bill Simmons, I guess he's a big sports guy, yeah, right? Yeah. So he does a podcast where they watch old movies that everyone's seen a million mm -hmm. times and they discuss them. Anyway, they were talking about Jurassic Park the other day. Yeah. And somebody said how uh somebody wrote a like hyper feminist reading of Jurassic Park. Love it. Which included the scene in the uh, helicopter when Grant can't get his seatbelt uh -huh. closed and he ties it in a knot. He ties two female sides of two seatbelts. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> like, okay. Like, obviously, okay. I don't think the filmmakers were thinking that, right? But no. they went to that level. I'm sure there are people who go to that level with your book for some reason, you know. It's, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen that level of close read yet. That'd be awesome if people did. <laughs> But yeah, like, there's Damien even really exists. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, was this person just a figment of, of Lindsay's imagination? I there don't were, know. There were times in the book where you could have gone in those kinds of crazy directions. Mm -hmm. Right. Because she was unreliable and she yeah. is a little crazy. So there's like a little bit of a, wait, I don't even know. Like, does she, is reality her basis or is her perception of reality the basis? Right. You know, there's a lot of that, right? Where well, that's, you, you could go all over the place. It's true. And that's sort of a theme of the book and something I was consciously playing with is this idea of like, there is no one exact reality. There's really just all of our interpretations of it. Right. And we're just trying to sort of line them up and, and agree upon an answer. Um, Did anybody that, ever try to push you off the cliff like that and be just like, oh my God, none of this really existed. And none of, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, did anybody give you notes, crazy notes like that? I would say the closest thing is that in, uh, an editor who passed, um, and I don't want to give anything away, I guess for those sure, who yeah, haven't read enough. it, but an editor who, who passed said, um, the whole time I was reading, I thought certain character must've been a figments of Lindsay's imagination. So quote, I don't know what that says about me. And I just right, kind of yeah. cracked up cause that hadn't been my intention, yeah. but. Well, I think interesting, like when you said at the beginning, how I don't have a lot of context for mm -hmm. this, right? Like, you know, I've read Dan Brown books and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like I've read that. Kind no of hate. Stuff. 
<laughs> no, I mean, the good ones are actually really good. They're the fun. bad ones are yeah. bad, but the good ones are good. Um, but, but it is definitely one of those situations. Uh, where was I going with this kind of the way that she said that, 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 you know, you can read into it and you can, you can find the thing that, that you hold on to, but it, but it, it's in some ways, the reader's perception of your book is also like the perception of all the people in the book of the real reality, right? Like I can take away from it what I want to take away from mm-hmm. it as can you, as can my wife, as can whoever else. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's part of the fun. I guess. Right. But it's part of what's scary as an author, because as you said, like it's out, it's, it's not mine anymore. Now it's out in the world. And if people want to, you know, here's an example, like Lindsay, like I said, she's um, 33 and she's single. And in my head, that kind of partially explained why she is so self-reliant, why she's so independent, why she's so, you know, sort of determined to, to figure this out on her own. Um and I myself am also <laughs> nearly thirty three and single, and so I don't. Wait, think do you it's see? Particularly now, I got to ask you a question. Do you see thirty three and single as being old to be single? Well, I don't. Here's okay. the thing: I don't at all. But then, and here's where I was going. People who read, some people who read it, are like, "Oh my gosh, she's so childish." Everyone acts so much younger than their ages in this right, book, right, right. and she's so she's sort of like pathetic and can't have real relationships because right. she's so broken or something. And people can, the, yeah, I can't control how people interpret sure. it. Um, but that one especially cracks me up because it's like, it'll be like a mom in like Texas who's like, everyone acts so much younger. And I'm like, oh, sweetie, come to New York. Like the 32 year olds, the fact that there's some married 32 year olds in this book is like, they're, they're acting very old for their ages here. It's yeah, yeah. sort of different, you know, Yeah, yeah, standards. totally. It's interesting because I, the, the, the characters in the book, I have a hard time identifying with them because I have never drank I did not live that life when I first moved to New York. Like mm-hmm. it's all very much of, oh yeah, this is, this is a world that I did not live in, mm-hmm. you know? So like me reading, I'm sure there are other people who read it and go, oh yeah, I remember exactly like that. Yeah. You know I mean? Well, I mean, I hope that there's appeal both for those who are like, oh my gosh, this is my exact post-grad life. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And for those who have never experienced anything like that, which will be obviously the majority of, of readers because sure. it's a small segment actually in McKibben lofts at those parties back yeah, at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what's been kind of cool is that some readers who specifically are older than me, like in their forties and fifties, who've really enjoyed it have then in t- telling their friends about it or posting about it on social media or that kind of thing have mistakenly said, Oh, this is a great book that centers around these party kids in the nineties. And when they do it, I think it's a Freudian it the slip. 90s, yeah. Exactly. Like they're sort of transposing their own experience sure. onto it. Yeah. So I think even if you can't really identify with the hard partying moment, there is um, hopefully enough. It's just interesting that it is fun to slip into, you know, what someone else's life might have been like. Sure. Um, but also, I think a lot of people are finding are connecting with that idea of, um, you know, you finish college and you are out on your own for the first time. And it's like the first time you're off that conveyor belt of people telling you exactly what to do and you just following a path. Yeah. And so there's a lot of. Um, freedom and and sort of fear and and just these big new feelings that come with that and sort of this invincibility of like the world is mine all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, that was really fun to explore and that I th- I think should be relatable to people even if it didn't mean partying in in a, yeah, yeah, a warehouse yeah. building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what so what's the what's the next step? I mean, you're you're going on a book tour. Yeah. So I'm doing a book tour. Um, just I mean, I have um 
a reading in Brooklyn tomorrow is the launch party. Actually, I actually don't know when this is going to, when this is going up, if it'll be over already. Let's see if I can get it up tonight. Okay. Well, if you're hearing this, March 1st, books are magic. Um, come party with me and author Jason Diamond. And then I'm doing some readings um, two weeks, two weeks from then. So mid-March in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Los Angeles. Um, and then I have a few other events coming up in April and May. Why Kalamazoo? That's where my grandparents live. Ah, there you and go. And they are 90 and 89. Aww. And so you're um, going to go hang out with your grandparents. I'm going to go hang out with my grandparents. So it seems a little random, I know, but I wanted to be able to celebrate with them because no, they're big awesome. supporters. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that's the first stop on my tour. Um, so that's next. And um, hopefully just keep, you know, I have more radio interviews and fun things like that to hopefully keep, keep attention high. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And then in the meantime, I'm just working on the next thing and trying not to obsess over... My Amazon sales rank and that kind of thing. So are they so are they making a TV show of this thing or not? What's the deal? So Mila Kunis's production company, along with another production company called Cartel, uh, recently bought the TV rights to develop it as a miniseries. Cool. Which yeah, is super exciting. They I've been talking to them for a few months. Um, Mila like read the book and said things about it on the phone, which was a very surreal moment. I mean, talk about that. Like, wait, how do you know about how do you yeah, know about yeah, Lindsay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Um, and so, yeah, that deal was just announced and, um, in terms of next steps, we're sort of waiting to hear what happens, but they do seem really dedicated and really determined to actually get it made. So I'm excited yeah. to kind of watch what, what is the, what is the, what are the numbers for that? Like, like, I mean, there's all kinds of selling rights to things and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, but like the amount of things that get sold that actually get made that get distributed like i mean it's it's like there are pitfalls all along that road no that's absolutely true it could fall apart at any minute um yeah. so i a lot of people have said it's like like getting your movie or your sorry getting your book option is like getting a it's like buying a lottery ticket so like yeah. yes it's the first step you definitely won't win the lottery if you don't buy the ticket yeah. but statistically it's still very much an uphill climb um why I'm excited and, you know, tentatively optimistic is that uh, these production companies, Orchard Farms and, and Cartel, um, like I said, have seemed really excited about the uh, excited about the project from the start. Yeah. And it's been like months of pursuing my film agent and whining and dining her and really having all these great ideas. So what a lot of what a lot of production companies do is just snap up rights to things. Yeah. They just buy the option. It's yeah. not very expensive. It just means that they have the exclusive right to exercise the option should they choose to. Yep. Um, and a lot of the time they don't, they just hang on to yeah. it just in case. Yeah. And it reverts back to you in three years or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, they get an option to renew and then or they you sell know, it to somebody else. Or, yeah, yeah. It's all, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's years down the line. They can just sit on it doing nothing with it. That's very common. And what kind of rights do they have to change things? They have a, Pretty much carte blanche to change. So they basically, things. basically, they could have a character named Lindsay who stopped drinking, and everything else could be different, and it could still have your title on it. That is correct. Yeah, yeah. Does that does that make you nervous? You know, I talked to them a lot about their vision, and I liked it. And um, I I have to think of it as like I made my art, and that's the book, and yeah. like these are people who their art is TV they're shows, and yeah. they're pros, and they're going to make the best damn TV show that they can. Yeah. Um, and I, you know. Have have nothing but excited feelings about it, but I'm not I'm not going to be on the writing staff or anything like that. It's their That's exciting though. Yeah, it's them doing their thing, and I'm just. It's really funny. It's like to, it's like it gets to have its uh, a second or third life. That's kind of yeah. I kind of feel like it's this it's this universe that exists, and they're going to tell the story in a totally different format, and therefore a totally different way. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the new book is, you're, you're finishing it up now. You're doing revisions. I'm doing revisions. The next book, it's called The Herd. It's coming out in 2020, pretty much exactly a year from now. Okay. Um, so hopefully you can continue expecting a book a year from me. Um, it's also a thriller. I can't go into too many details yet, but, okay. um, I think fans of the lost night will like it. It also is going deep on female friendships and ambition and sort of what happens when women's high achieving women's perfect veneers begin to crack. And there's a lot of hopefully intrigue in there. Do you feel now that you've written a book, you've gone through that process, the other book you finished a year and a half ago, do you look back and go, oh, if I had to do that other one again, I could do it so much better now. Like I'm like I'm a better writer now because I've been through the process and here I am writing the second book. You know what I mean? Like I'll look back yeah. on photos I took five years ago. I said, damn, if I had that shoot again, yeah, I would have done it differently and I think it would be better. I'm super proud of the last night. I don't know that there's I'm a lot of- I'm not discounting that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying no, to- No, but to, no, to answer your question, um, I think my process was a hot mess that almost, you know, nearly killed me. Like it was, yeah. I that first draft, like I said, had nothing in common, had almost nothing in common with where we ended up. Whereas for this next book, I kind of knew what I was doing and I still- um, I didn't plot, I didn't outline the entire thing. Cause like I said, I kind of figure it out as I go, but it was so much more efficient knowing what beats I needed to hit and sort yeah. of emotionally what I needed to be doing with these characters and, and what needed to be there. Um, and I think because of that, it's so much, even the first draft is so much like tighter and more fun and more suspenseful. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, going forward, it's just, I'm just going to get better as a writer and I'm super happy with how the last night turned out with all of the handholding and all of the revisions and yeah. all of the help from friends and beta readers and, and a huge team of people. Um, but yeah, if I were sitting down with the same premise of like, you know, your best friend's suicide might've been a murder. I think I would. Would you go a different direction? Would you change up? Like, would you say, oh, instead of going North, I'm going to go North, Northeast. I think the plot would have pretty much ended up where it is because I, I, I do personally think it works. There's yeah. some stuff that like maybe isn't as woke language wise as I would do it now. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a, this is a minor example, but the, the phrase committed suicide comes up a lot in the book, obviously, cause we're talking about right. an alleged suicide. Um, and I've since learned that like the, the correct, that that's actually not super appropriate language because committing the word committing, um, presumes that it's like a, like a criminal act. Yeah. Um, now you want to say dies by suicide or killed themselves or something like that. Um, so like, you know, I'm vaguely embarrassed that there's non woke language that probably won't age. I, I think you're well, safe but, with that particular one. You know, but then again, it's of a time it's of 2015 or it's whatever. True. Right? It's so, true. It's a time capsule. Right. Exactly. Like all things are. Yeah. Uh, and when you sell the second book, is that based upon once you've proven, okay, yeah, I have a book coming out, whatever it is, I know how to write a book. Do you sell it based upon a two, three word synopsis or do you sell it based upon the first chapter or what, how does that work? So I started by discussing the premise. Actually, I had two ideas first that my editor passed on. So the third idea we discussed, um, and I kind of came with just a premise and she loved it. And so then knowing she was on board, I wrote, um, sort of a, like a treatment, like yep. a two-page or so um, pitch and not really a synopsis because I, like I said, didn't totally know how it was going to end. And then I wrote two the first two sample chapters. And it was pretty funny because um, 
you know, I turned those in and my editor loved them. And she goes like, you don't have to tell me because I want to be surprised, but like, you know where this is going and everyone's backstory and what the secret is. Right. And yeah. I was like, uh-huh, sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Totally. <laughs> um, and you know, sold it from there and then had a deadline and had to start figuring it out. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're about to begin that process again very soon because if I'm going to keep hopefully writing a book a year, then next month or so on. is when I'm going to be pitching book number three. <sighs> yeah. It's like a, it's like a treadmill. It is. It's funny. Like this is totally, quote, quote unquote, live in the dream. And I absolutely can't complain, but like, man, it seems more glamorous when Stephen King is doing it. Well, that's the thing is that the reality, I think of all of our creative lives is that it's not that we don't enjoy doing the day-to-day thing that you have to do, Mm -hmm. but it is a day-to-day thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm rolling a Pelican case into some person's office to shoot them for some magazine it's not all glamorous B-roll of 50 people setting stuff up because there's no budget for that doing right. it that way. You know, that right. kind of thing, right? Right. You're answering emails at all hours about exactly. covers of textbooks. Oh, God, and yes, Yeah. yeah I'm going to get back to that after this. But yeah, exactly. That kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Right? Um, all right. So where do, where do people find you? Where do they, uh, what's the best way for them to buy? You think local bookstore. I mean, local bookstore, if you can do it, is is the way to do it. If they don't have it, they can you can give them a call, and if they don't have it, they'll order for you it and get it get it to you within a day or two. Um, and if you go to indiebound.org, I'm pretty sure it's .org, indiebound.org, um, you can order it directly from them, which money sort of gets distributed between indie bookstores, or you can type in your uh, post your zip code, and it'll show you indie stores near you that carry this book. Right. Um, so that's, you can buy it on Amazon for a certain amount of money. You can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> it's still great. Um, you can get it from Barnes and Noble. It's sure. on target.com. Um, kind of wherever, wherever books are sold. Okay. Um, I have a pretty big list. My website is andreabarts.com. Uh, okay. and that's got a bunch of buttons to, to buy it directly. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Andy Bartz, A-N-D-I-B-A-R-T-Z. Um, come follow along. I have an author page on Facebook, which you could find by searching. Like are people like discussing it on there? Um, no, not really, but it got, it got some new likes this week. I'm probably the least active on, on my author page. So I only have like 300 fans or something, right, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. uh, Twitter and, and Instagram are probably where I focus more of my efforts. Okay. So go check it out on Twitter and, uh, look forward to the next one. What's the next one called? The next one is called the herd. The herd. All right. Yeah. It'll be my second book I read in the next 15 years. All right. I See, love there it. You go. <laughs> Thank very you, honored. Thank you for coming over, Andy. Thanks so much, Bill. All right. Bye. <laughs> See, it wasn't that painful. Right? No, totally. Not.